This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, we have to talk about gas prices last today because last night I saw something that I, I didn't really expect to see. So I was out, you know, running some errands, doing a few things. And about 8.30, I'm driving, you know, down Granville Street there, kind of in the Marple area. And I see gas prices at uh, like 157.9. I passed one station that was 157.9, but it was on the other side of the street. And I thought, oh, geez, that's a pretty good price. Then I go down around the corner and there's a gas station where gas is 155.9. So given that most other stations are $1.72.9, I thought, man, that is a good price. That is 17 cents a liter cheaper than I am seeing at a lot of other stations. But as I'm processing all of this, you know, because it's going by in your head, I also notice there's a whole lot of cars at this gas station. In fact, every pump was there with a car parked in front of it, as well as three cars deep of a lineup that they had waiting to get in to get this price of $1.55.9. I never thought I would see lineups for gas when the price is $1.55.9, but that is what I was seeing there. Not surprising given kind of, I guess, the way prices have been going. You want to save 17 cents a liter? Yeah, people are going to wait in line for that. But here's my question today for our hot question of the day. How long are you prepared to wait in line for a deal like that? Because that lineup looked like, and there were more cars arriving. So I'm guessing that that was going to be like a 15 minute wait. I I wasn't able to wait in line for that. My gas tank also is half full. So I thought, you know what? I'm okay. I'm going to have to, you know, let this one go and I'll look for some maybe tomorrow night. But I'm wondering, how long would you be prepared to wait in line? If you saw gas right now, it was like $1.55.9, so it's 17 cents a liter cheaper than you're going to see in most other places. How long would you wait in line for that? Would you say, forget that, I am not waiting in line for gas? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Or however long it takes? Now, I asked John McComb this question earlier, and he said 10 minutes max is how much he would wait, no matter how cheap the gas was. I'm like a 15-minute, I think, person. I can wait 15 minutes in the line, and at that point, you're invested. So you're going to end up waiting till the end anyway, right? So how long would you wait in line for gas if it was if you saw it right now for $1.55.9? Go to our hot question of the day online, Simi Sarah 980, and cast your vote on this. You can also go to Simi, Sarah, um, Simi at cknw.com, email me, or you can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Right now, I would say most places are $1.72.9, but I was just looking on gasbuddy.com. There are some places that are about 10 cents a liter cheaper than that. There's numerous places that are about you know $1.60, $1.65.9, but you really do have to kind of look around for them. Uh, hopefully, it'll get a little bit cheaper tonight, but you can find the bargain out there if you're driving around. My question is, if there's a, you know, you go down one block and it's $1.72, and then in the next block, it's a $1.60, are you willing to kind of wait in the lineup for that dollar sixty? And how long are you willing to wait for that? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com or just take a vote at our hot question of the day. You'll find it at Simi Sarah at 980 on Twitter. Uh, we've got dozens of votes on this thing already. 38% of the people who voted for, so far say they wouldn't wait at all. They are not going to wait in a lineup for gas. 30% of people, though, say they'd wait five minutes. 16% say they'd wait 10 minutes. 
and another 16% say they would wait however long it takes to get a deal when it comes to gas. And 32nd out in Surrey, check out the gas station that's near there. They've got gas for $1.64.9, which is, you know, five, six, seven cents cheaper than most other stations today. Uh, if you're out of luck and you're just going to have to pay that $1.72.9, well, hopefully we can help you with this as well. Because starting Monday, we are giving away a $100 gas card every day. You have to call us on the buzz line and then you nominate someone who you think deserves a break, that these gas prices are really hurting. We're going to collect those nominations. We'll randomly draw a winner on the John McComb Show at 9.35 every morning. And remember, you have to tell us exactly why that person deserves to win. Leave your name and number and the name and number of the person that you're nominating so we can get in touch with them if they're so deserving of this $100 gas card. So that starts on Monday. But in the meantime, for the rest of us, like me, I'm not eligible to win this contest. So I have to try to figure out when is the best time to buy some gas. We're going to find out what's exactly going on out there right now with the help of Dan McTagg, who is a senior petroleum analyst for GasBuddy.com. Hi, Dan. Hi, Sammy. How are you? I am good, thank you. I was noticing that there was a lineup for gas last night at $1.55.9. Does that surprise you? Uh, no, it doesn't surprise me at all, uh, but the price itself does because, of course, that gas station is buying uh, fuel for about $1.59. So if they're giving it away for $0.04 cents less, uh, you know, by all means, uh, let me know. I'll be out there myself filling up. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there are still some good deals to be had. Uh, you know, you still got... Uh, there's a Husky over there uh, on uh, uh, 709 Marine, Southwest Marine Drive and uh, West 70th Avenue. Uh, they're down to 159.9. I've seen a couple of Costco's out in uh, Delta that are down much lower than I expected. Uh, you know, for this for the, at this time of day, we don't te- technically see prices uh, this low. Uh, you know, uh, the Chevron uh, at uh, 120th and 86th Avenue uh, is uh, was 157 last night. It's likely to see that number again tonight. So there's a lot of uh, varying prices right across the city. And, of course, the best time to buy is never in the morning, but always in the evening. Right. And why is it we have those varying prices? Because that, Dan, usually when prices go up, it's pretty consistent, right? But I noticed that this time around, there has been more variation. Yeah, there has. Uh, and the variations really have to do with the gas station's not wanting to lose, uh, well, it's one thing to lose money. It's quite another thing to lose customers who may not come back. And so they're competing for every uh, liter that they can sell. And if it means having to drop those retail margins that they have some control over, and we're talking only about 11 cents a liter, uh, then they're often quite, quite willing to say, all right, at some point in the afternoon, I've covered uh, what it costs me to run my gas station, to honor credit cards, to pay for the electricity, to turn on my pumps. I can now drop those margins and uh, keep people happy, especially on their way home uh, before a weekend. So, I mean, if you go to Langley or Port Coquitlam, you'll find uh, the Costco's out there, what, 157, 156. Uh, Pitt Meadows, I've seen some there for, for $1.60, $1.61. And they're starting early. Uh, but by the afternoon to the evening, I can. if you look at the Gas Buddy website, and it's pretty easy to use, it's free to download, it's free to use, it will show you savings of up to 10 to 12 cents a liter. And as you pointed out last night, as much as 16 yeah. to 17 cents a liter from the 172 we're paying today. Right. So I guess, so you're saying these gas, some of these gas stations then are thinking, well, if I lower the price a little bit, maybe they'll come in, buy lottery tickets, a few snacks, and I'll make my money there too. That's right. Now, remember, a gas station also makes a bit of money by increasing or holding their volume. Why? I'm a big supplier to 15, 20 stations. If within those 10, 15, or 20 stations that I supply, 
my uh, total sale has increased by two or three percent, I'm probably going to get a pennies discount from my supplier, my refiner, or whoever's supplying me, because the person who can move volumes is the is the big winner here. Refineries make money; uh, they run seven days a week, 365 days a year, except when we have planned or unplanned maintenance. But they want to make sure they get that product out there, and uh, you know, it's no skin off their nose to drop it a penny or two, uh, especially if they uh, if you can find a creative way to get more people into right. your store. And that doesn't just necessarily mean lower gas prices; it might also mean different services and great bonuses inside that convenience store. Is that what makes this time different though, Dan? Because usually, um, you know, there is this uniformity, all the prices go up, but there does seem to be more of a pressure on these companies this time to factor in some savings for people. Yeah. I mean, if we look back a few years ago, you rarely saw this. You would have the one price I predict in the morning. It would stay pretty much in the afternoon and you'd sometimes see some wiggle room only on the weekends when headquarters wasn't looking. Uh, now it's commonplace. It's, uh, a number like uh, uh, 172.9 by afternoon, they might be down to 169.9. And, you know, sometime after supper, uh, they might actually drop all the way down to 162, 163.9, uh, keeping only enough to maintain their nose above the proverbial financial waterline and hope that uh, more people come and shop there. And they will use the site, our Gas Buddy website, to find those places. So, uh, you know, it works for them, but it also works for you know everyone to know where the best prices are as they change hour on the hour. But there's the tried and true, which is new in Vancouver, is now very clearly never buy your gasoline in the morning, always buy it in the evening if you can, and even better, wait till the weekends. I know, I had your voice in my head yesterday when I was thinking about stopping <laughs> and doing that. Uh, but also, what is going on Yay. then with the prices? Because as, if people have, numerous people have pointed out as well, is that the actual price of oil, like the, the barrel price, is $64 or so. That doesn't cor- like correlate to what we're seeing at the pump. No, and you have really two markets. Uh, You don't put oil in your gas tank, you put gasoline in your tank. And of course, uh, many will go even a step further and say, oh, look back in 2008, uh, it was $140 a barrel, $130 a barrel, and you know the price was as it was. Well, back then, we didn't have a carbon tax. Back then, we didn't have a TransLink tax to the extent that we do. And here's the big one. No one really takes this into account. But back in 2008, right until 2013, we were known in Canada as the holders of the petrodollar. And what that really meant was that as petroleum oil prices went up, so did the value of the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback. Right. That, that U.S. dollar is the international standard. It's the gold standard for all commodities. Back in those days, uh, you know, the, the, dollar, the dollar was on par. What does that mean? A savings, if you I couldn't, I, my eyes popped up when I did the calculation last night. If the Canadian dollar was trading the same as the U.S. dollar today rather than a dollar 34.5, you and I would be saving up to 37 cents a liter. So, wow. you know, $1.37, uh, once it, you'd be paying $1.35. Uh, I think most of us would probably not be having this interview. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry to say, Dan, we would not be calling you <laughs> with the regularity that we call you right yeah. now. Uh, you wouldn't be as busy, yeah. nearly. So that's it. It's the, really the Canadian dollar difference. Yeah, a big time. I mean, I know many of us cheer a weak Canadian dollar. I don't. And I know that uh, as more and more of our commodities are priced in U.S. terms, and we all collectively take a hit on our purchasing power. And I can, I can spend hours saying, you know, what economists tell me, what uh, people who have uh, more, uh, you know, more in, into the currency issue tell me, uh, a lot of it ha- is linked to oil and our inability to get uh, world prices, let alone uh, get our, you know, oil to world markets. And so that's part of the reason. There's a number of other factors, but uh, the reality is 
that's the big enchilada. When I look at gas prices now and what they were 11 years ago, which is the height of the super bubble, the energy super bubble, which, of course, caused the economic collapse in a good number of countries, especially our friends in the South, uh, it was, uh, you know, that variation in the currency that really accounts for the big, massive difference we see today. Apart from the fact that uh, there were times uh, in the summer of 20, 2008, I was a member of Parliament, I watched these things very closely, where market prices for gasoline were actually lower than oil. Oil was so uh, superheated in terms of its price that it was exceeding even the cost of gasoline on the market. So that's never, it didn't happen before. It certainly hasn't happened since then because of really the, uh, the euphoria right. and, of course, the uh, paranoia, I think, over uh, uh, declining oil supplies. So then, Dan, this kind of variation that we're seeing, the little nuances, the ups and downs, is this going to continue? Is this the new normal? I think over a dollar sixty to a dollar sixty-five uh, for us in Vancouver is the new normal, um, and I'm still. We're going to get a bit of a decrease. I got to tell you that right now. We're going to see a small decrease, maybe of a penny tomorrow, uh, before people get the party hats on and the uh, Twizzlers. Uh, maybe they want to just look at the fact that we're likely to stay above a dollar sixty-five at least until the end of May. There may be days where we drop below that if the market does happen to somehow collapse. I don't see that happening, uh, but I do see more upward pressure on oil prices uh, as the world starts to really tighten the outlook for oil supplies beginning next week with the, the sanctioning of Iranian oil and, more importantly, the civil war that's going on in Libya. That's getting really out of hand, and it's likely to uh, lead to much higher prices for all of us globally. This is a tough time, though, for oil companies as well, wouldn't you say? Because, I mean, they, gone are the days where they could just raise the price and raise the price. At some point, there, there's going to be a tipping point. Well, I think there is a tipping point, and you're seeing that south of the border where they're reluctant to raise prices, where they actually have refineries. We're caught here. We don't, we've only got our tiny little refinery in our backyard here. We, we, we are, and I've said this many, many times before, we're price takers. We, we don't have the ability to dent uh, you know, regional prices. We can't affect what's happening in California. We can't affect uh, what's happening in, in the Pacific Northwest uh, markets of the five refineries that are south of the border. But we can... Uh, you know, sort of at a point realize that there might be some element of what's called demand destruction. That may not necessarily be on gasoline itself. I'm sure sales of gasoline have dropped everywhere along the Pacific coast. But also, and more importantly, it's the spillover effect into other sectors of the economy that's important. If I have to now reach into my pocket, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I drive a four-cylinder 2.5-liter 2012 Ford Escape. Uh, if I was paying a dollar twenty nine uh, for gasoline in mid March, and I'm now paying a dollar seventy two uh, on sixty liters, which I'm using pretty much every week with my family, that forty cent a liter increase is now costing me an average of twenty five dollars more a week. That is money that has to come from somewhere else. And so, the longer this goes, the right. past two to three or four months, you can see why it, you know, discretionary spending isn't going to be about people leaving their vehicles because they have no choice. It's about other things that aren't going to get purchased and how it makes its way through the economy. So true. All right, Dan, thanks so much for your time. No worries. And thanks for having me again, Simi. Anytime. That is Dan McTagg, the Senior Petroleum Analyst with GasBuddy.com. If you see the cheap gas, he said, take it. Let's update you now on one of the big stories right across the country today, and that has to do with some of the flooding that we are seeing in central and eastern Canada today. For instance, just in Quebec today, right now, more than 3,000 homes 
are already underwater. There are another 2,300 homes that are surrounded by it. You've got more than 1,000 people who are out of their houses at this point. Officials also keeping a close eye on a hydroelectric dam that's along a tributary of the Ottawa River. They are concerned this dam is at risk of failing. It uh, was built in 1915, obviously upgrades made over the years, but not really built to withstand the kinds of floods that they're seeing right now. Meanwhile, in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford says he believes climate change is among the reasons that Eastern Ontario homeowners are having to try to save their homes from flooding for the second time in just three years. He was in the rural west end of Ottawa this morning. He's been touring some flooded areas along the Ottawa River. Officials there are warning that a new rainstorm is going to make water levels rise rapidly over the next few days, likely exceeding the levels that they saw uh, during the 2017 flood that was just so devastating. So in Ottawa, the city, uh, Mayor Jim Watson has declared a state of emergency because of flooding, and they've got another 20 to 50 millimeters of rain that was forecast to fall by the end of tomorrow. That's a lot. Uh, Meanwhile, there's a forecast done by the Interprovincial Committee that regulates water levels in the Ottawa River. And it says that all that rain could increase the level near Parliament Hill by nearly a metre within a few days. There are paths that are behind Parliament Hill that are already underwater because of this. And so there are residents all over that area that are kind of furiously sandbagging to try to keep their homes dry. They've called in the military. About 400 soldiers have been deployed to the Ottawa area to help them do that and assist with other flood operations as well. Meanwhile, at a press conference this morning, the Minister for Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, Ralph Goodale, uh, agreed with Doug Ford, saying the impacts of climate change are dangerous and damaging and that the flooding throughout eastern regions of Canada is the most obvious manifestation of a changing climate. He said this is a national public safety problem. In the midst of a, of a crisis where we're trying to save lives and property and, and keep people safe, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into a, into a partisan argument, but I think we all have to learn the lessons of, uh, of, of climate change. Um, the, uh, the impacts here are powerful and dangerous and damaging. Uh, and this is one of the one of the most uh, obvious uh, manifestations of a changing climate. Uh, more uh, unstable weather conditions, where you can get uh, precipitation that uh, uh, that uh, dumps about a year's worth of moisture in a day or two, uh, and then it all floods and causes enormous damage to private property as well as public infrastructure, uh, as well as the economy, uh, and. Uh, uh, you can then move into a cycle where the problem is exactly the opposite. Uh, as people around bigger Saskatchewan saw in the last number of days where incredibly dry conditions lead to uh, wild grass fires. Uh, or further north in the boreal forest, uh, the, uh, the kind of fire that uh, we saw here in Saskatchewan in 2015, or in Fort Mac in 2016, or in British Columbia in 2017 and 2018. These wild cycles from storms and floods to droughts and wildfires, uh, that is a very serious national problem. It is a public safety problem. Uh, and we all have to work conscientiously together to do th- two things. As much as we humanly can to slow down and mitigate the consequences of climate change, uh, and then to put in place the uh, adaptations 
that will put us in a stronger position to be more resilient and more able to withstand the consequences and, uh, and deal uh, with the consequences. It's a, it's a very serious um, environmental, economic, and public safety issue. And we all have to treat it with the gravity that it deserves. And this is, as mentioned, the second time in just three years that these same communities are being impacted by these huge flood levels that they are going to be seeing today and over the next few days. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that story. Let's talk some more about Facebook, because you may remember the story from yesterday that the privacy commissioners in BC and the federal privacy commissioner all want to take Facebook to court. And they are moving forward with doing that because they said the social media giant's lax practices has allowed personal information to be used for political purposes. And they say Facebook doesn't really seem to show a lot of interest in responding to their concerns or doing anything about it. Their investigation uncovered some very, I would call them major shortcomings in Facebook's procedures and called for stronger laws to protect Canadians. Remember, we spoke yesterday with Michael McAvoy. He's BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner. And he told us that, you know what, Facebook talks a good game, like publicly when they make their public statements, but they were not cooperative when it came to implement some of the recommendations that were presented. They were unwilling to agree to uh, several recommendations, which we thought were common sense. For example, I mentioned all of these people whose data had been swept up. Tell people, notify those people about that. Uh, They said that that was not something that they could do. Uh, We've asked them to more actively monitor those applications that go onto the Facebook platform, looking at their privacy policies, making sure that they're actually in accordance with what Facebook's policies are. Facebook invites all these applications onto their platform. Surely they should be responsible for making sure that these applications have proper privacy policies in place. Seems kind of basic, right? That's Michael McAvoy, the Information and Privacy Commissioner here in BC. Well, for the past year, Charlie Angus, the NDP ethics critic, has been lobbying the government to do just this, investigate Facebook. So we wanted to talk to him about the findings in the Privacy Commissioner's report. So uh, the NDP MP joins us now. Uh, Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Did it feel like yesterday you thought, you know what, about time? Well... I think what's been disturbing is we're seeing around the world legislators and regulators starting to call Facebook to account. And what we get every single time is this, you know, the California shrug. Well, geez, sorry about that. But, hey, we're making so much money. If we were actually asked to do this, it might cut into our profits a little bit. By the way, we don't believe that Canada has any jurisdiction to make us comply with protecting Canadian citizens. So, I, I mean, the B.C. Privacy Commissioner and Mr. Terry and I think have done an incredible job. This is a damning indictment. And what is equally damning is Facebook's response that um, they just don't seem to care. Uh, and I think this is going to require a greater political conversation and certainly a public conversation. Facebook does seem kind of um, unwilling to listen to all this because everybody I've spoken to feels like regulation is inevitable and the company is not really doing anything to prevent that. Well, you know, like, let's let's look at what's gone on under Facebook's watch. I mean, this breach that we're talking about, that I, I wrote the original complaint that the Privacy Commissioner started, was 87 million people's information that was taken. Facebook was aware of this over three years, did nothing to stop it. That information was turned over uh, to SCL, this company that is this dodgy international, um, you know, black arts 
operation, and that those profiles may have been used in upending American elections and the British Brexit vote. So the implications of the abuse of that information is enormous. We have in Myanmar, where the horrific genocide of the Rohingya people took place, Facebook was called again and again by the UN groups on the ground saying, you need to do something with your platform. Facebook shrugged. So when you have a company that is so powerful that it can, its platform can be distorted to upend elections or cause genocide, and they don't seem to think there's a problem, well, then we have a much broader problem. Are they just not capable? Are they just at this point, do you think, listen, they are not going to fix this, so it has to be fixed for them? Well, imagine a car company saying, yes, thank you for this damning report on all the safety violations. However, we're making so much money, if we actually had to do this, it would cost us something. They are one of the richest companies in the world, and their profit comes from taking our private information. So they have obligations to protect that. They have obligations to make sure that their platform is not being used to distort uh, electoral processes or to spread extremist doctrines or to have live killings, mass murders of people like we saw in Christchurch, New Zealand. Every time Facebook gets caught, they shrug, they tell us, hey, we're on a journey, we're learning. We've never seen any level of corporate accountability from them. I think we're at the point where we have to start talking about much tougher, clearer rules for Facebook, much stronger obligations, as well as antitrust. Uh, They are just so powerful, they believe domestic laws are quaint. Well, hey, they're not, and so we got to show them that. Do you think Canadians care, though? Like, Facebook's attitude towards this in some ways kind of mimics what the general public is. Facebook users who have all this evidence in front of them of the way their information's being used, and many of them continue to use the platform. Well, I think the the argument of, like, you know, that before was used, well, if you don't like it, get off the platform, is not reasonable. Uh, people should be able to go on and meet their old friends and post pictures of the, you know, cooking that they do and engage and discuss. Uh, it is like a utility. It has become our social conversation tube. It has become the arbiter and curator and editor of news that we see. So we should be able to go on these platforms and have some basic rights respected. And I actually think Canadians have long been very aware of their privacy rights. And, and Canada actually held Facebook to account in 2009 for this breach, that if we'd had the legal powers then to force compliance, we might not be in this situation with Facebook now. I think the issue is not about Canadians, who I think get it. It's about the federal government and their unwillingness particularly the Trudeau government, to take on Facebook because they're comfy cozy with the massive Facebook, Google, Silicon Valley lobby. We've got to be able to give the privacy commissioners the tools to say, hey, you're a multi-multi-billion dollar corporation. If you abuse your trust, you're going to pay massive fines. What kind of tools are you talking about? Well, right now, the privacy commissioner has no ability to force compliance. So they can say, hey, thanks for the report, but we don't respect your jurisdiction. Facebook is facing $5 billion worth of fines in the U.S. They had half a million pound fine levied against them in the U.K. The best we can get is maybe $10,000, so that's not good enough. The Privacy Commissioner is there to defend our interests. He should have tools. Uh, we need stronger accountability mechanisms for the how the false news is being pushed on Facebook, the algorithms that push people to further and further extremist content. I mean, your radio station has to meet broadcast standards. I mean, your listeners can get on and debate all manner of stuff, maybe some outrageous stuff, maybe some really controversial stuff. That's all okay. But there are limits 
for media that have to be respected by national laws, yet Facebook doesn't seem to think that they should have to abide by that. So I think we have to have some broadcast standards to ensure the limiting of extremist content and holding Facebook to account. Is it time to not just treat them as a platform, but as a publisher then? I think there's conversations we need to have about Facebook as a publisher. Facebook also maybe as a public utility. Um, In the United States now, there's a real conversation of breaking up their powers because Facebook's business model is on uh, surveilling everything you do so that they can make money off it. Well, now they have WhatsApp. They have Instagram. Should they be able to take all these platforms to take everything that we do in our private lives and public lives and feed it into the big Facebook machine? I don't think that that's in our interest. I think Facebook is... I use Facebook every day. It's a platform I, I like. I get frustrated by but hey, it's what I use. But I don't think we should just allow them to take more and more and more of our information to make money on unless they're going to have some level of public accountability. And right now, they're really bad corporate actors. Certainly seems that way. Well, Mr. Angus, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. That is Charlie Angus, the NDP ethics critic. We're getting his comments on the uh, what the privacy commissioner had to say yesterday in terms of trying to get some answers out of Facebook. Hey, do you like chocolate? Dumb question, right? Who among us does not love chocolate? What if I told you there was a way to enjoy chocolate and help kids in Vancouver's downtown east side? It is called the Chocolate Challenge. It's an annual charity event that brings together some of the top chocolatiers in the city. And it is all to help out the Vancouver Firefighter Charity Snacks for Kids program, the Project Chef Initiative, and the Strathcona Backpack program. Oh yeah, we are definitely going to do some good today and help out with this. Joining us now, oh, one of our favorite people, Karen McSherry, founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse, and she is knee-deep in this whole thing. Hi, Karen. Hi, sweetheart. Thank you so much for letting me sell my fish on my um, founding charity, and I'm very excited about it. I know. Well, this is such a great event, too. So tell us all about it. What happens at the Chocolate Challenge? So we, um, I founded this program seven years ago um, out of the sort of the sadness of watching children drag empty backpacks to school every day and feeling sick about it because as most people that know my store know, the location is sort of on the, the fringe of the downtown east side and, and, and it's not pretty. So I thought, you know what, when you're, do, you're dealt four aces, give one back. And this is my give back where I donate 100% of every cent that comes in to the three charities that you mentioned at the top. Um, and they all feed kids on the downtown east side um, at various times when food is very scarce. So I corralled some of the best people in the city, best top chocolatiers, and they are awesome. And they truly are the heroes of the night. So we'll start off by who they are, because I know a lot of the listeners will know exactly. So we've got Thomas Haas, Stephen Hodge, Mm. Thierry, uh, Greg Hook, Chocolate Arts, Christopher Bonzon, Danny Duca, and Jeffrey Kale from the Pack Rim. Now, we've changed it up a little bit because these guys are all celebrities in their own right, and they don't need any more crowns on their head. So we last year decided to then let them choose a rising star within their establishment and coddle and mentor and let these young up-and-comers feel oh. that great pride of 
creating something that's unique and then the chefs themselves are the judges of who the winner is to make it completely fair. Uh, Karen, that is so that is so incredibly stressful though for some up and coming chocolatier. This is like a reality TV show. They are gonna be judged by this panel of judges that are like the best of the best. I wouldn't want Thomas Haas judging anything that I make. I know. But you know what? The only good thing is each of these kids know that they're going to get one vote and that's from their mentor. So everybody else, it makes it so fair and it's a great learning process and it's all for the good. So the chefs are there to mingle with all the the um, people that buy tickets and there are these cute little mentees hoping that you love their chocolate. And it's all nice. You just wander around, so you're going to get seven unique creations that have never been served before. These kids dreamt it up with the assistance of their their, their senior chef. And then because you'll disagree with this in a million. Are you, you sure? You cannot live by chocolate alone. You're going to say, I what? Do, I, I do disagree with that. <laughs> I knew you would. And so we have got amazing people coming to the forefront. We've got Carderos doing sliders. We've got pizza. We have got pasta. We have got um, Fernando doing um, uh, from the taco place. He's going to do this great soup. We've got Ernest ice cream serving up mini cones. Wait a minute. This is all in the same place and I can just wander around and sample all this stuff? That's all you do. You just wander around and sample and eat all night. Vintage Corks is our uh, co-sponsor because they do all the wine bars for the whole night, which is a huge give, huge give. And it is amazing, amazing night. It, it, it is. And then to top it off, it, it is as much as I wish that the silent auction would really go over the top, but because it's a hood affair, everybody comes casual, jeans, sneakers, like it's not a dress-up affair. So our silent auction, who is, it's generously um, driven by all of my suppliers who give. So we're talking Le Creuset, All Clad, KitchenAid, Wustoff, Shun. We have got all these premium brands of products all on an auction table. For you to bid on, and sadly, they generally go for half price. And I, what? like you, Simi, love a deal. We love yes. a deal, and mostly, you know, because it isn't that. It is, it is the the way it is, and that's what an auction should be. I got a great deal. Yes. And so people are walking away with all clad at half price. That so, is unbelievable. On top of all the other great stuff that you're going to have there, yeah. that's kind of like the icing and on the cake. Have, so when is this? And two tickets. To Air Canada's North American World is our one live auction item. Oh. And it's May 2nd, a week. It's coming Thursday, 6.30 to 9. It is such a great event, and the whole thing is feel good. And it's $79. That's it? That's it. $79, and you get all of that all night. You get to rub noses with all the, the chefs. Um, Jay Janauer from Global is our MC, and we all love Jay. He is so much fun, and he'll just bring it right to, you know, ground zero and make it happy. You know, it, it's a great, great event. And the nicest thing, we the firemen all sell raffle tickets. They're 5 bucks. and the raffle table isn't like, oh, here's your crummy prize that nobody wanted. Yeah. It's a, table full of items that are $80 to $200 and you go and you choose whatever you want. Wow, this sounds like such a good time. When you win your number, you pick whatever you want. So it's a win-win for everybody. And then you walk out full, chocolated all up, (laughs) and and you gave back to all these kids. It's a great event. Tell me about the backpack program, the Strathcona backpack. Like, What do you put in the backpack? How does that work? 
So we give, we just get the money, and then we give the money to the firefighters for their snack backpack. So on the weekends, um, when the kids go, because Strathcona does weekday meals, they do weekday breakfasts, and they they provide. But Friday night, when all the kids go home, generally it is to a a very slim-picking cupboard. And so what the backpack program does is they fill the kids' backpack up with healthy food, snacks, so that it will tide them over for till Monday. Oh, that's such a great idea. An amazing program. And Project Chef is... Um, my good friend Barb Finley is the founder, and what she does with her team is they go into inner city schools and they set up cooking classes from K to six to tell and teach kids that there is a difference between a zucchini and a Dorito, and and and, and a Dorito isn't dinner. That is so important. And that is good stuff. How to cook, and they don't know. And when they and the letters that I get. To me, I have hundreds of letters from school kids saying, without your money, we wouldn't be able to do all this. Thank you. And and, and the oh. printing, uh, next time I come in, I'm going to bring, bring you some, some of the letters and it melts your heart. And, and, and the cute printing and it's just like, we learned to make, um, you know, vegetable soup today. I have never tasted this before. Oh, that's so cute. Okay. Yeah. So whatever we can do to help yeah. out. So tickets are available on the website, gourmetwarehouse.ca. GourmetWarehouse.ca. We've got about 45 tickets left. I want to sell out because that's sort of the cream of the, you know, absolutely charity then gets more. So all the chocolatiers are ready. They're rolling in. Um, rub noses with all the chefs. And it's really a fun event. All my staff volunteer their time. So it's really cool. Okay, well, we'll so see what I we can really do. Let's see if we can. To come. Yeah, we'll see if we can sell those 45 tickets for you. We'll see what we can do, Karen. Thanks, sweetheart. No, anytime. Thanks, hon. Have a great weekend. You too. That is Karen McSherry, founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse. So they've got a couple of dozen tickets here left if you'd like to check this out. Uh, You can either go to gourmetwarehouse.ca or do what I did, and I just Googled Chocolate Challenge 2019, and that was the first thing that came up. Uh, $79, and you get to go and essentially eat great food all included in that ticket, have great wine, watch a great kind of, you know, competition of young chocolatiers. And on top of that, all that money is going to go to a great cause. So yeah, check that out at gourmetwarehouse.ca. All right, still ahead for us on the show today, we're going to be talking about the murder of the journalist in Northern Ireland. Remember this story? It was from about a week ago. Well, since it happened, people have been demanding in that country that her death not be in vain. And today, political leaders from all sides of the spectrum there have agreed to come together and actually talk. That's something that they haven't seen there in a couple of years. So we're going to talk about the new hopes for the people of Northern Ireland and why it was that the killing, this one this one killing seems to have sparked such a change. That's coming up just after the uh, 1230 news. So stay tuned for that. I want to talk about something that you're going to be hearing much more about actually next week. So starting on Monday, the John McComb Show is going to be launching a week-long series right across the Global News Network. And it's going to examine the troubling issue of miscarriage of of justice. It's called Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. It's written and produced by Pippa Reed and Nikki Reitmeyer and narrated by John. And the series is going to take a look at the reasons why innocent people get caught up in the justice system, how they get convicted, and then get sent to prison for crimes that they didn't commit. 
And it's also going to look at things that need to change to make sure that other Canadians don't keep slipping through those same cracks. So a couple of examples here for you, because you might be wondering, well, how prevalent is this exactly? Have a listen to this story. Maria Shepard was 21 years old, two children that she had. She was pregnant with a third when she was arrested and charged with the manslaughter of her three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter, Cassandra. So she was convicted based on evidence that was flawed, Uh, the flawed evidence of Dr. Charles Smith, who we now know was responsible for putting away about a dozen other people in jail through testimony, which was essentially lies. And Maria will talk about going to prison. Going into the prison system as a woman that is pregnant and you're innocent at the same time, you know, when I left after I was sentenced by Justice Langdon, I was placed in a paddy wagon dressed in a maternity dress, and I was shackled at the feet and handcuffed and brought into this paddy wagon. And I remember I was now sitting in this this small space, handcuffed and shackled. I had a whole other perception of what prison was going to be like. And then I get there, and as I'm being processed through admission and discharge, um, I'm told that when I get brought upstairs to the protective custody range, that I'm to tell other inmates that I was there for murdering my husband. Because if they find out that you're there for an offense on a child, you're done. That's Maria Shepard. You're going to hear more about her story. She went in, so she started her sentence uh, and she was pregnant and she spent a significant amount of her two-year, less-a-day sentence at the Vanier Centre for Women in Ontario. And then she was moved to a nearby halfway house and that's where she gave birth to her daughter, Chanel. And it's a time in her life that she still has a lot of trouble talking about. I was relieved that I wasn't actually in Vanier anymore uh, giving birth to her. Um, But it doesn't eliminate, you know, all the trips that I took in a prison vehicle to to privately go see a doctor in handcuffs, Um, you know. And then when it came time to her being born, I don't have, besides asking for uh, medication twice, I don't have any memories of the labor at all. And it's humiliating to admit it, and it's very depressing, and I try not to talk about it much, but... I don't even have any memories of actually holding her. I don't remember ever. I don't remember ever holding her after she came out. So those are, you know, I can't even talk about it. I'm breaking up, actually. Um, those are really painful memories that sit with you, that you don't quite get past after a while. I need the community to know that it could happen to anybody on the street. And if we don't take action now and we don't try and work on prevention and correction now, then our current generation and the generations to follow may very well fall prey to problems that we could have prevented. It's a pretty powerful story, isn't it? Now, Maria was being hauled off to prison in 1991. And right around that time, there was another Canadian whose life was being turned upside down. And that is Robert Baltovich. He was charged with the murder of his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain, in Toronto. She went missing from a university campus there. So there was faulty eyewitness testimony and even witness hypnosis, which helped to put him away for a crime that he did not commit. And Rob talks about the day that he was convicted by a jury and then sentenced to life in prison. I guess in the back of my mind, I just kept saying, you know what, you're innocent. 
you can't be convicted, you're innocent, you can't be convicted, you didn't do this. And then, of course, when they said, when the foreman said, we find the accused guilty as charged, I mean, it was a pretty brutal feeling, and I just tried to stay strong, but I could, you know, I just kind of glanced behind me, and uh, I saw that a lot of my family members and friends were crying, and uh, so it was just, it was just pretty messy, but the one thing I'll remember even more than my own reaction was uh, there was kind of an audible gasp uh, that came from some of the media who had been covered the case. And I thought it was interesting because there were points during the trial where I felt like the media had kind of bought into the Crown's theory. But I think toward the end, they kind of realized, you know what, there's not really a lot here. And so one woman in particular uh, I remember saying, oh, my God, they found him guilty. And uh, it's not much solace, but I, but I think that there were a lot of people in that courtroom, myself included, that were pretty shocked and disappointed. But, uh, you know, at that point, there was really nothing I could do other than just try and suck it up and try and be strong for the people in my family. Now, Robert says he never did receive an apology, and he has spent 10 years trying to clear his name. No, I haven't got an apology yet. Um, I'm still hopeful that I'll get one at some point. Uh, there is a civil suit. And, um, you know, if you know, that is resolved in my favor. But, you know, I'm not so sure that anyone who participated in my prosecution, whether on the police side or, you know, the prosecutorial side, uh, is really that sorry. Um, I just... I, I, frankly, I find their behavior absolutely baffling. I mean, especially now in light of the fact that, you know, it, it seems that at least some of the witnesses that were called, uh, some of the witnesses that were procured, pro- procured by the police in the Crown, um, they knew, they knew these witnesses were wrong. They knew these witnesses might actually have been lying. And, uh, you know, I just, I just don't understand it. It's a very strange case. I mean, I realize I'm in the middle of it, so maybe I can't be the most objective person. But I just find it very bizarre, and uh, I can't quite understand it. Uh, I, I may never understand it, but I still kind of feel like there must be something out there that I haven't seen yet that might actually explain why it is that they did what they did and why it is that they feel justified for having done it. But I haven't seen it yet. Now, Roberts is a pretty complicated case, so you'll have to listen for more on this uh, next week when on the John McComb Show they are featuring more of these stories in depth. For instance, in Roberts' case, his lawyers have repeatedly tried to point the finger at Paul Bernardo, saying that Bernardo at that time was active in the area as the Scarborough racist, a rapist, and they believe that he is the one responsible for killing uh, Robert Baltovich's girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. Uh, the case officially has never fully been solved. Either. So there's a lot more to come on this. Tune in next week as we walk you through some of Canada's highest profile cases of wrongful conviction, how the justice system failed those people, and how it could happen to anyone. So that starts Monday uh, on the John McComb Show. Now imagine this for a second, that we here in BC didn't have a functioning provincial government. I know, I know, spare me the jokes. I'm talking about for real, that there was not a functional government. Imagine that for whatever reason, MLAs couldn't come together to agree on a way to figure out who was in power, like what we happened had, you know, after the last election, if it didn't happen in such an orderly fashion. Instead, there was a deadlock where the legislature just didn't function. 
Well, that's actually what it's been like in Northern Ireland for more than two years now. They're kind of holding a world record for the longest period without a functioning government here. Now, the political spectrum there is different, of course. Instead of functioning along like conservative and liberal lines, uh, voters' allegiances are pretty much more commonly based on whether the party is nationalist, meaning it ultimately wants Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland, or whether they are unionist, meaning they want Northern Ireland to remain as part of the United Kingdom. So to help keep the peace, the Legislative Assembly can only function when there's cooperation between those two communities, the nationalists and the unionists. It's called power sharing. But that assembly collapsed in January of 2017. So more than two years ago, it was because of a scandal that the unionists signed off on and involved kind of a mismanaged renewable energy scheme cost taxpayers something like $800 million. Well, the leading national nationalist party wanted the unionist first minister resign. She refused. They brought down the government and on it goes and on it goes, right? It is complicated, but essentially what it has meant is that people there for the last, well, more than two years have not had a functioning government. It just, the two sides are just getting deeper and deep, more deeply entrenched in their opposition to each other. But then in the last week, something changed where the community was reminded of the dark days of conflict and violence in Northern Ireland. Last week, there was a riot in the city of Derry. You may have heard a 29-year-old journalist, Lyra McKee, was reporting on that riot when she was shot dead by a member of a group calling itself the new IRA. Political leaders from the unionist and nationalist communities then came together to condemn that murder, and they stood together in this part of the city called Craigan. And at Lyra McKee's funeral, the priest said this. Many of us will be praying that Lyra's death will not have been in vain and will contribute in some way to building peace here. I commend our political leaders for standing together in Craigan on Good Friday. I am, however, left with a question. Why in God's name does it take the death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her Applause, a standing ovation even from mourners at a funeral. That is not something you see every day. And that moment has gone viral. I was seeing that everywhere this week. Uh, The political leaders were there at that funeral too. And then the video kind of shows them awkwardly joining the standing ovation pretty much after everybody else in the room had already stood up. So then that brings us to today. What has all of that brought? After two years without that government now, today, the two sides, the nationalists and the unionist leaders, have agreed to come together. They're going to start some fresh talks to try to get the assembly back up and running. So they're hoping they could have an agreement by mid-July. So this is very significant. This is not something you would have seen in past years when it comes to these age-old divisions between those two communities. We wanted to learn more about it, get more detail about it. So I spoke with Gavin Riley, who's the political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us. It seems like so much has happened in Northern Ireland over the last week or so. It's been quite a week. We haven't seen something like this in a long time, have we? 
No, and it really, I suppose, uh, has been a way in which uh, the repeat of events, which in previous days would sadly have been quite routine, has really just reminded a lot of people in Northern Ireland just how far that the society there has come in the last 20 years and how much there is at stake if it was to slide backwards into the sort of conflict that it had previously seen. Um, obviously, the, the major event of the last week was the, the tragic death of the journalist Lear McKee, who was shot dead while um, covering some riots uh, last Thursday night, Friday morning. Um, her funeral was, uh, I suppose, a real embodiment of the progress Northern Ireland has made. Um, Lyra was born into a Catholic family, but her funeral was held um, in a Protestant cathedral uh, with a multi-faith service with uh, people making addresses from all religions and none. Um, but possibly the most significant point was at one moment where the eulogy was being delivered um, that the Catholic priest giving it said that it was an awful tragedy that a 29-year-old would die at the time that she did when she had so much to give. And he noticed that there were so many politicians from uh, from London, from Dublin, and from across all of Northern Ireland's pretty dysfunctional political system, that they were all now finally together in the same room, all mourning the same cause. And he said, why does it take the death of a 29-year-old to make that the case? And before he had even finished the sentence, the entire church uh, not only sprung to its uh, feet in applause, but then gave a standing mm-hmm. ovation. And it was it was quite an iconic uh, TV scene to see the, the politicians who are supposed to be the leaders um, at the front of the room ultimately being led in that sort of sentiment because clearly um, Lyra's death had been used as a statement by the Northern Irish community to say that they want to have you know rudimentary ordinary uh, run, run fundamental run of the mill everyday politics and that's what uh, this latest uh, proposal is to try and restore. Oh yeah it really was something. So what was what was a slippery slope Gavin that Northern Ireland had been on that led to this moment because it seemed like that violence had slowly been creeping back up. Yeah, um, ultimately there are uh, too many kind of factors to sort of go into in a kind of a brief summary and I suppose without trying to be too maudlin about it or to try and, and pin everything on Brexit certainly Brexit has been uh, a really big division uh, within the Northern Irish communities because you know the whole essence of the settlement and the Good Friday peace accord that was reached for Northern Ireland 20 years ago um, it was effectively trying to ensure that there was a kind of a joint management between uh, the part of the community that considers itself to be Britain and wants Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom uh, and on the other side the part of the community that wants Northern Ireland to rejoin the Republic of Ireland and have nothing to do with Britain at all. Um, the Good Friday Agreement put an end to 70 years of dispute as to who actually owned the territory and recognised that it was British but was supposed to set up this mandatory government where you would have to have both communities recognised in governance. Um, that in itself uh, fell apart two years ago uh, not because of any major kind of strategic direction but just because of a squabble between the two major parties on each side but since then Brexit has become a real wedge between the two communities because it has really highlighted that difficult question of whether Northern Ireland should be considered inverted commas British or whether it should be Irish and even whether there are then ought to be different rules and possibly hard borders um, on the island of Ireland with two different countries um, sharing that piece of land um, but it, it really has then become uh, much more polarised in, in recent times as well that whole question of a border has really chipped in um, but in the meantime because uh, Northern Ireland hasn't had its own devolved government, this power-sharing arrangement between unionists um, and nationalists, um, that ultimately Northern Ireland hasn't really been governed at all. And really what's happened is that in the vacuum of the last two years, which has been especially polarised by Brexit, we've had the, the empty husks of the old paramilitary groups, old groups that now have reformed and are calling themselves the IRA, who have begun to exploit that, that empty space in politics and have now tried to present themselves to younger generations as the only means by which their voice can be heard. 
heard because right now if you're a nationalist in Northern Ireland there is no local devolved parliament where you can have your say and if you're electing members to Westminster the only ones that have been elected are all from Sinn Féin and they don't take their seats in Westminster as a point of protest because they don't want Westminster to rule Northern Ireland if that makes sense so so the, the, the short answer is that there's been a real political vacuum and it has taken these paramilitary groups to, to show that they can move into that vacuum and perhaps guide people away from the path of peace and back towards the violence that we've seen so many times in the past. Right, but it seems like right away when this when this murder happened, a lot of people who were probably, you know, letting things go realized, no, no, we don't want to go back to the way it was. Yeah, I, and I think that that's the real uh, telling point about what's happened in the last seven days, that there were probably a lot of people from um, around the world, and indeed so many people in, in Ireland or in the UK as well, who sort of thought that Northern Ireland was fixed, because the main paramilitary groups like the, the IRA that we knew for three decades are all now off the stage. They have either disbanded or decommissioned. None of them are, are in any sort of activity anymore. So people would have assumed that simply because murders were not happening every day in Northern Ireland, that in fact the, the issue had been solved. But what the, the death of Lyra McKee proved last week is that it hasn't really been solved at all and that although it is of course better than it used to be because these sorts of paramilitary murders are now so rare that they are international news when they happen rather than just being background noise yeah. in their own society. Uh, but, it, but it's a reminder that you can't just assume that the progress is there forever and that you pour concrete over it and that it's, it's completely set in stone, that these things do need to be actively worked on. And, and much as we've seen in other conflict areas in the past as well. The fact that you have a new political agreement doesn't necessarily mean that people's hearts and minds will change overnight. So although there is this, on the face of it, this settlement or this agreement between the, the unionist community and the nationalist community, deep down there will be some who reject that idea of compromise, who are, who are still prepared to, to turn to violence to achieve their own political ends. And that's why it's important to show that the political solution, which was there up till now, is one that can still work in this day and age. You mentioned uh, Brexit there over the last two years, do you think that really resulted in everybody kind of taking their eye off the ball here, thinking about Brexit, not thinking about, hey, we've had these other problems that actually being in the European Union helped them solve? Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, a lot of people in Northern Ireland were very frustrated when the Brexit debate was happening in the UK as well, because nobody had really given much of a thought to what would happen on the island of Ireland if you'd had 20 years of peace, and then suddenly, because of what was effectively an economic decision, that you would ultimately have a hard border drawn between uh, two neighbouring countries on the same island, and whether anyone would really want that. The big impact that Brexit has really had, though, is the fact that because it, it not only has it occupied so much time in Dublin and in Westminster, but the two major parties, uh, the biggest party on either side uh, within Northern Ireland, they are both so fundamentally at odds on Brexit. The DUP, uh, as listeners might know, are the people who are propping up Theresa May's government, and they are arch-Brexiteers. They want to have the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, completely out of the European Union. On the other side, you have Sinn Féin, who don't want the UK to leave the European Union, because anything that drives a wedge between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland is a, a completely unacceptable pivot to so it has already been such a major uh, squabble between those two parties that ultimately nothing else has had a chance to get focused on. And there was, up till now, a perception that really you weren't going to have much of a, an opportunity to get those two parties back into the same room, running Northern Ireland alongside each other, at least until the Brexit dispute was out of the way. But what's really happened in the last week or so is that the, the death of Lyra McKee has proven that the rest of Northern Irish society isn't really prepared to wait, and that instead of just parking this issue until Brexit has been put to 
bed in some way that they would still like Northern Ireland to have its, its everyday politics that any developed Western society ought to expect for itself. Interesting. All right, Gavin, thank you so much for your time. Not at all, Simi. Thank you. That's Gavin Riley, political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland, explaining the uh, amazing kind of gulf that they have managed to bridge this week uh, because of the death of that 29-year-old journalist, Lyra McKee,